0: Thank you, Victoria. Morning, everyone. Uh, last Sunday, we ended the service on our knees, which kind of felt like the right place to be and the right response because it reflected John's reaction and posture following his dramatic revelation, one vision of Jesus and all his beauty and all his brilliance and all his radiance. And so John hit the ground as though dead. And so many of us physically did something similar a week ago. Well, today, there is a sense that we should probably resume that same position. Because we are about to be given, or we're about to receive, if we're open to it, a vision of worship that then becomes a call to worship. As we walked in here earlier this morning, we might have thought, you know, I'm going to a worship service today or I'm coming to worship today, but the reality is when you walked in here today, you entered a worship service already in progress. Worship does not begin with us and it will not end with us. When we gather here together each week to worship, we step into a worship service that has been going on, that has been up and running for a very long time. So if you have access to a Bible, please turn to Revelation 4 as I explain more. Now John's uh, vision last week came at the end of chapter 1, so there may be some people here today and you're kind of thinking, why have we just jumped two chapters? What happened Revelation 2 and 3. Well, in John's chapter 1 vision, Jesus, you'll remember if you were here last week, is among the lampstands. He is present with the seven churches that are listed in Revelation chapter 1. And while he is among them, Jesus has a message for each of them. In fact, he has a message for all of them. In fact, he has a message for all churches, including Windsor Baptist. And in that, those two chapters, two and three, we get to hear those seven messages, one after another. And so what we are doing as a church is that we are actually listening to those specific messages on Sunday evenings, not Sunday mornings. And so last Sunday night, we heard the challenge to Ephesus and to us about our first love or about the loss of our first love. And tonight, if you're able to come back, we're gonna hear what Jesus said to the church in Smyrna and what he is saying to us about being fearless and faithful in the midst of intense pressure, if that is indeed what we're under. So that's, in a sense, why we've jumped chapters two and three, because we're doing those in the evenings, okay? So have a look at how... Chapter 4 begins. After this, I, that's John, looked and behold, and the word behold here means it's a kind of command. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Remember, John is on Patmos, he's on a prison island. It's still the Lord's day, maybe. We're not entirely sure. But he receives another vision. Last week he received that amazing vision of Jesus, but now he receives another vision. He sees another unveiling, another revealing. The curtain is pulled back once again. Or to be more accurate this time, a door is opened. And John's given a glimpse of reality or a different reality reality. Because remember, and this is something I've been trying to stress and emphasize, Revelation reveals, Revelation reminds us, this type of apocalyptic literature underscores this, that things are not as they seem. Or rather, things are not only as they seem. There is more going on, like way more. And so as Tim Chester writes in the book of Revelation, John is opening our eyes to the unseen world. We need to see better. We all should go to a spiritual spec savers. See, what's happening here in this whole idea of seeing the unseen, it's kind of like that incident that we looked at a few years ago during our Game of Thrones series in Kings. Where in 2 Kings 6, Elisha's servant wakes up one morning and he looks out and he discovers that an enemy has racked up overnight. And when he sees this enemy surrounding them, he panics and he turns to Elisha and he says, what are we gonna do? And so Elisha prays. But what does he pray? I don't know if you remember. He prays for something very specifically. He prays that his servant's eyes would be opened And they are, because when the servant goes and looks again, he sees another army. He sees a different army. He sees a heavenly army. He sees an angel army there to help them. You see, the servant initially sees a visible fact. Elisha prays he would catch a glimpse of an invisible fact. He would catch a glimpse of a fresh reality. And if you like, he does. Because you see, things are not only as they seem. Well, back to Revelation 4, because it's the same deal. A door is opened. And when that door is opened, reality is revealed. Present reality. Reality in a new light. And this perspective changes everything. And I mean, everything changes. So, John sees a door standing open in heaven. Now, heaven is not some faraway place out there or away up there. It is another dimension, it is another realm of reality where God dwells. It's right here, it's always here. There exists a heavenly realm that lies beyond the realm of what we can see with our natural eyes and perceive with our senses. Do we see it? Do we see it? Whenever Jesus taught us to pray our Father in heaven, he wasn't suggesting God was in some far off, distant, remote, disconnected place. Miles away. No. He exists in a realm of reality that is right here. That intersects That converges, that is close at hand. And so for John, a door is opened and he sees it. He gets a glimpse of present reality. He sees heaven. But let's read what he actually observes there. So let's, here's what I'm inviting you to do I want you to pick up and put on that pair of revelation glasses. That alters, doesn't actually alter, it actually clarifies our vision because it's there. Before we read, and, and by the way, I know some of you are thinking, hold on a wee minute, David, chapters four and five have got to be taken together. And I, I know that, I realize that, but we're only going to look at chapter four today. And the other thing I want to say before we read is please do not forget, and this is something I stressed t- two weeks ago when we started this series. Please do not forget that this is, Revelation is a letter to seven churches who found themselves under intense pressure and under the growing influence of a Roman empire that was growing in its dominance and in its power and in its control and its voice. And therefore, it was written to be primarily read out to a group of Christians to encourage them, to challenge them, to transform them as they attempted to live out their faith and to follow Jesus and survive in a hostile and confusing and complex environment. Revelation has become a source of speculation, a code to break, a puzzle to solve, a cause for division, and many, many other things. But you see, if we forget, it's primarily a letter written to particular Christians at a particular time facing a particular situation, and it was written to help them. If we forget that, we're gonna get sidetracked, and we're gonna get lost, and we're gonna get preoccupied. So let's head back to that open door. Let's join John as Jesus, and that's Jesus invites him to come up and to see what's going on, what's happening. And so if you're able and willing, please, will you stand with me as we refocus and as we step into a worship service? After this, aye, that's John looked, and behold, it's a command, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, so that's Jesus, obviously, said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit. It's something that John seems to be in quite often. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and carnelian. Let your imaginations and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were twenty-four thrones. And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Well, you remember the sevenfold spirits. And before the throne, there, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And round the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings and they're full of eyes all round and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. Did you see it? Are you seeing it? Grab a seat. So remember one of the one of the things I said about reading Revelation, the question you need to keep asking is, what did John see next? Not, Don't ask the question, what happens next? What did John see next as you read your way through this? So what is, have a look at verse 2. What is the first thing John sees? What's the first thing he sees? Verse 2. Someone shout. Sorry? A throne. Now, this becomes a, or possibly the most dominant image in the rest of Revelation. From this point on, 47 times, from chapter 4 to the end of this letter, is reference to a throne. In chapter 5 next week, the other most dominant image we are confronted with, which is the Lamb of God. But the first thing that John sees, and the first thing that he wants his readers to look at and behold, because remember this is a command, is a throne. There is a seat, a supreme seat of authority and power, of rule and reign. There is a center of control. Now remember, his readers are looking around through their ordinary set of spectacles, if you like, and they are looking at another throne where power and authority appears to reside, from where control is apparently exercised, and which is currently occupied by an emperor called Domitian. And he's the one who calls the shots and he sets the tone and he determines what happens and he dictates the future. But John sees and he reveals to his readers and he wants them to view reality through a different set of specs that there is a much bigger, there is a much greater throne in existence which is the ultimate seat of authority and power and control. And even before he writes and says and reveals anything, that, anything else, that in itself would have been a vivid reminder that things are not as they seem, or not only as they seem. They were looking around, and it happens. You look around, and it's a mess. Everything is a mess. It's fallen apart. It's confusion. It's distress, and It's out of control. But no, there's a throne. There is a premier headquarters. There is a control center of the universe. There is a bigger picture. There is a better story. And the same goes for us because you look around us this week and you can conclude that everything is in free fall. spiraling out of control. Our world's in a total mess. Disaster. And although from a certain perspective that might be how it looks and appears it seems, it's not. There is a heavenly throne. There is a control hub. There is a ruling center. Do we believe that? But we can't stop there. We mustn't pause there because the critical issue isn't the fact that there is a throne. That is important. But it's who occupies it. Who's sitting on it? Well, according to John, have a look at this with me. According to John, there's one seated there. So this throne isn't vacant. And as the vision unfolds, we discover more and more about the identity of the one. But again, as John struggles to describe in words and images what can never be adequately described, he reaches for words and images and starts talking about things that appear or things that are like. And he says, and so he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Like, what? We're back to those lakes from last week. And all we can say is that the imagery suggests beauty, majesty, radiance. And therefore, the one who sits there is altogether majestic, altogether stunning, altogether dazzling. He is beyond description. He's a gem. But thankfully, there is more revealed of his identity in this chapter. And so, look at verse 8, because we read that the living creatures, and we will get to them, by the way, and we'll get to the other characters in a short way. But those living creatures, they call the one who is on the throne something the Lord God Almighty, the one who sits at the center of the universe who's in control, is none other than God who has all might, all power, all authority. But even before they declare that, they sing, holy, holy, holy. The one who is on this throne is holy other. W h o l l y, Holy other absolutely pure. Holiness is the essential fundamental attribute of God. Nothing, no one compares, no one rivals, no one matches this. No one competes. And they're not finished revealing the identity of the one who's on the throne. In fact, they never finish worshiping because it goes on day and night, night and day. But to quote first, what is their final refrain? They say, see this one that's seated on the throne. He was, he is, and he is to come. There at the beginning, there at the end, there in the middle. This one is eternal, ever from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. And again, please do not lose sight of what this is communicating to the first readers. Domitian is on the throne in the Roman Empire. And he is going around, going around declaring that he is the eternal king. He is demanding that people worship him. And so whenever John reveals what is reality, there is a one who is and was and is to come. He's eternal. There's no one else. And then we listen in on what, well, what do the 24 elders tell us about the one who's on this throne? Well, the first thing they tell us is he's worthy. He's worthy of all worship and all glory and all honor. And then also for he created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. The one who is the creator of all things, everything is, including Domitian and the Roman Empire, everything owes its being to the one who is on the throne. If he ceases to exist, so does everything else. And so as Paul made clear to a bunch of people in Athens, it's in God that we live and we breathe and we have our being. Whether we recognize that or not. The 24 elders certainly did. And so because he is the creator And because he called into being the first creation, he can, and he will also call into being a new creation because the next time we hear God speak in Revelation is almost at the very end, whenever he says, "Look, I will make all things new. You see, the one on the throne is the creator and the re-creator. Now, although the, the picture, and there it is on the screen, of the one on the throne isn't complete, and it never is complete for that matter. There is always more. There is already enough in this vision. There's already enough to see with those set of Revelation 4 specs on to cause us to join in and worship. There is a throne, and on the throne there is one who is a gem, who has all might and has all power, who is holy times three, who is eternal, who is worthy, who is the creator. And so it's time, in a sense, to hit the ground again. But there's more going on. And this must have been quite a spectacle because we read that from the throne, something's coming from the throne as John looks and he sees present reality. From the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Now, this isn't a new idea. Back in Exodus 19, whenever God showed up and descended on Sinai and fire, there was lightning and there was thunder. There was thunder and there was lightning. And in the rest of Revelation, there is a series of electrical discharges at least three more times. And whatever else they indicate and whatever else they communicate, they at the very least tell us this, that the one who sits on that throne is terribly awesome. And we are now in the presence and we are dealing with sheer greatness. So we need to hit the ground. But there's more, because in front of the throne, John sees there are seven torches of fire, which is, verse five says, are the seven spirits of God. It's not the first time we've come across this. If you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember. Grace, this is verse five of the first chapter. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And I made the point then, and I'm gonna repeat it now, that most people think this is a reference to the sevenfold spirit of God. And some of your translations, those of you who use the New Living Translation will see that that's how it actually translates that in this chapter. And therefore, this could be confirming that the Holy Spirit is completely here, completely there, present, available, and always is for people who are caught up in this vision, for people who see present reality. And this is where it gets rather interesting and mysterious. Verse 6, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. Now, in the rest of Revelation, the sea represents everything that opposes the will of God. The sea in Revelation and often in Scripture is seen as a place of chaos and evil. And so, for example, it is out of the sea that the first beast emerges in chapter 13. And so what might be going on here is the recognition that evil does exist. And it exists seeking to cause and spawn chaos. But in this vision that John sees, the sea is as smooth as glass and it's as clear as crystal. And so before the throne, chaos is stilled and subdued. And again, can you imagine the first readers hearing this? Hearing this read aloud, they knew the reality of chaos, it was threatening to overwhelm them, crash over them, that see sink them. But before the one who is on the throne, their chaos can be calmed. In Psalm eighty-nine, we read, "O Lord Yahweh, who is like you, O mighty Lord? You rule the swelling of the sea, and when its waves rise, you still." Chaos does not win. And the one on the throne has got this. And what I find fascinating, and we'll discover this, is that whenever John is given the vision of a new heaven and a new earth, one of the striking things you discover about that is the sea has gone. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. Wow. Chaos eradicated. Back to chapter four. We're nearly done. You okay? Luke says, John, before the throne's the sea, but it's like glass and crystal. And it could be John's way. And we're not, we're not sure, but it could be John's way of saying, despite how you guys feel, who are reading this for the first time, despite what you see before you, you despite the fact that those waves are huge, Before the throne, your God has got this under control. And he will not, chaos will not have the last word. But what about those other creatures? In this greater reality, the 24 elders, they're seated on the throne, at least they are temporarily. And what about those other four living and totally weird creatures? 24 elders most likely represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Representing the people of God, before the first coming of Jesus and after the first coming of Jesus. In other words, it's a picture of the church. It's a picture of the redeemed people of God. The four winged creatures, full of eyes, back and front, inside and out. What is that about? Well, they're a bit harder to get and work out and process. One is like an eagle, which is the mightiest among the birds of the air. One is like an ox, which is the mightiest among domestic animals. One is like a lion, which is the king of the jungle. One is like a man, which is the pinnacle of God's creation. So could it be, and this is possible, that these four creatures represent the whole animate creation that has been made by God and that has been made for God, but far more, and get this, far more important than their identity is their activity. It's what these four living creatures and these 24 elders are doing around this throne. That's what's critical. That is what is key. And what is it they are doing? are worshiping. They're worshiping the one who sits on the throne day and night, night and day, 24-7, non-stop, ceaseless worship. That is what is going on. And so the elders come down from their thrones, or rather they fall down and they cast their crowns before the central throne. They take all that they are and all that they have and all that they have achieved, and they lay it before the throne in the middle. For all of life flows from and all of life returns to the one who is on the throne. Because all of life is worship. All of it. And we get to join in a worship service that is in progress right now in present reality. Here's how Daryl Johnson puts it. The single most reliable indication that our vision is clear is that we are a worshiping people. People who worship with their lips and hearts, with their minds and bodies. People who worship with their words and their deeds. People who surrender everything to the one who sits on their throne. And that, church, is my invitation to you today. I'm going to invite the musicians to come up. Because here's what I said at the very start of Revelation 4. I said Revelation 4 is a vision of worship that becomes a call to worship. That's what it is. John got a glimpse of present reality. God, the creator, sits on the throne in heaven right now and is worthy of complete devotion so the question is, do we see that? Do we see that? And are we going to join in heaven's worship and all that it means in this convergent space right here and right now? Are we going to, in a sense, and I'm not suggesting we do this, but are we going to fall down and surrender our lives to the one who is worthy, as those four creatures did? And not only did, but do, and constantly do, and always do, and consistently do. It's exactly what the 24 elders always do, and constantly do, and consistently do. We were created to worship. And our response to whether we choose to see and choose to worship the one who's on the throne determines this moment, determines today, determines tomorrow, determines all our tomorrows. And so as we continue to be part of a worship service that is currently happening in present reality, let's join in with some of the lyrics and actions of the creatures and the elders, and let's sing. We're gonna sing two songs. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. About halfway through the day, our song shall rise to thee. And then we're going to sing, let's, stand, let's lift up our voices and declare he is holy. And next week, as we continue to look through that open door, we're going to discover that the one on the throne has got something in his right hand. It's not like Jesus who had the seven stars in his right hand. The one on the throne has got something else in his right hand which needs attention. Let's worship.